Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. This is Krista Bontrager. Welcome to this edition of the Theology Mom podcast. I have a big conversation for you today. I'm looking forward to bringing it to you. I'm going to be talking about the research, summarizing the research that I've been doing for the last three years on Christian higher education and the state of the critical social theories coming into Christian higher ed. Uh, I'm going to start things off here with a little commentary to get it set up, and then we're going to watch an interview together, and then toward the end of the podcast, I'm going to share with you some final thoughts about why I think, after all my research, why it is that Christian higher education, why the administrators, why the board members do not get rid of the critical social theory. I've explained in many previous podcasts all different aspects of the conversation, everything from hiring practices to diversity, equity, and inclusion directors and teams. And I've written blog posts on residence life, and we've had we've covered this topic a lot of different ways. But the question that keeps coming up time and time again is why? Why? Do they, why do school, Christian, higher ed administrators and board members, why do they allow the critical social theories to stay? Why do they not get rid of it? Toward the end of the broadcast, I'm going to be sharing why I think that is. As we get started here, I want to ask you to make sure that you are subscribed. Make sure that you hit that notifications bell on YouTube. It's a little tiny extra step that you have to do to get notified when I go live or post new content. Also, if you could please go on Apple Podcasts, leave a short review for this podcast. I would greatly appreciate it. That's a wonderful way to support this ministry. With that, I want to do a little bit of setup to introduce to you the interview that I'm going to bring you first. Um, as many of you know, several years ago, three years ago now, during COVID, during the lockdown, uh, our family went through a season of having a situation where our daughter came home from Biola, and I started to notice some things um, that concerned me about the ideas that she was interacting with in her classes, content she was interacting with in chapels. And I began to go down the rabbit hole of watching chapels. And then that led to me interviewing a lot of Biola and former Biola staff and faculty and department chairs and deans and parents and students and former parents and former students. And that was a season of just doing a lot of first person interviews, trying to get the landscape and trying to understand what my daughter was experiencing at Biola. Now, my husband and I went to Biola 
my husband's parents went to Biola. So we're a three-generation Biola family. And I just couldn't understand what was happening. And in the beginning, I, I, I was in denial. I thought, well, maybe this is just a rogue prof. Maybe this is just a bad hire. It took a long time and a lot of data for me to come to the very difficult conclusion that this was structural, that, that there was a certain the, uh, theoretical framework that was embedded throughout the university from the resident's life to the chapels to the classrooms. Now, this is not to say that uh, there aren't biblically faithful professors that my daughter had at Biola. She had many biblically faithful professors. But there was definitely a structural intention in how they were hiring, particularly in key administrative positions, to embed the values of diversity, equity, and inclusion across the university. And so that was a, a difficult conclusion to come to, but then what really kind of cemented it for me was when I started looking at the trend more broadly outside of Biola, and I started looking at Christian higher ed as a whole. And I saw similar traits pretty much everywhere on varying levels. So if you want to know more about how to vet a Christian college, you can go check out my webinar on the Theology Mom web um, YouTube channel about how to vet a Christian college. And I walk you through kind of a five-step process to do that. During that season, um, I became connected with a gal who uh, was also at Biola at the same time as me, and her kids are roughly the same age as my kids, and they were also students at Biola. And she was uh, very much more embedded in the Biola life. Uh, she was involved with the Alumni Association and and other entities in um, connected to the at the administrative level, and. Um, uh, she and I started having conversations, comparing notes and all of this sort of a thing. And meanwhile, uh, she was also doing her own research on what was happening in education, not just Christian higher ed more broadly. We started seeing some patterns of this particular theoretical framework of the critical social theories being embedded in, in certain academic disciplines across the board in higher ed. Uh, she's finished her doctoral research. She uh, has agreed to come on the show. And I'm going to introduce you now to my friend, Kristen McLaren, who is going, we're going to have a conversation here about the state of higher education and in particular, Christian higher education and the impact of the critical social theories. Be sure to stay tuned to the end of the interview where I'm going to share my conclusions about why the critical social theories are allowed to linger in Christian higher ed. I'll see you on the other side of the interview. Here it is. Hey, Kristen, I'm so glad to have you here. This is going to be a fun conversation. I finally talked you into it. It only took me about five years, but <laughs> here we are. So maybe let's start off by giving kind of the two-minute introduction of who you are and your background in higher education. 
Well, as we, we both know, I graduated from Biola in 1991. That's where we met um, yep. way back in the day. And then I started my career as a high school English teacher in Arizona. Um, and then while teaching, I earned a master's degree in curriculum instruction. And then when I had my kids, I left full-time uh, teaching, left the classroom. I really prioritized being home, uh, teaching in ministry contacts, a lot of um, women's ministry opportunities. And then when both my kids were in school, I was given the opportunity to take a part-time role um, supervising student teachers. And um, later I also taught and, and worked in other areas of teacher preparation. Uh, originally, I just thought of it as a great way to use my skills and my training and a job that worked really well with my family. And that grew organically as my kids did. I ended up working in teacher education for about 17 years. And I care about the state of education um, as a whole front, and uh, as a whole, I'm on several fronts, uh, as a mom, as a believer, as an educator, and specifically a Christian uh, in higher education. Yeah, let's talk about that, because well, I think that both of us graduated from Biola, and we, I should maybe clarify we barely knew each other by only, yeah. only tangentially well, uh, we had some mutual friends uh Kristen sang in the the corral at Biola and I had friends in the corral so we only knew each other tangentially oh. we're probably better friends now yeah absolutely than, than we were then but we kind of found each other and reconnected mm-hmm. when our kids started going to to Biola and I was like oh I remember you and hey you and 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 so right. Article that we both had a passion for apologetics and yeah, um, yeah, just a yeah. Lot I kept seeing you online, and I was like, "Wow, she's so thoughtful, and and she makes such great comments." And you were involved with the alumni association, and so you know, you and I are both very um, education matters to us. Mm-hmm. We've both been proponents of higher education, Christian higher education. Our kids graduated from Biola. Like this is not something that is some. Um, tangential tiny issue over here in the corner this is something that we that we both care about and that's why we really want to have this conversation of like wow i have some concerns i'm noticing some trends here yeah absolutely we we both align on that we've had a lot of great conversations over the years um again both coming at from a place of being for christian education being for um you know violin in general and Christian education more broadly um, and just caring really deeply about what that looks like because both of us had that experience. Our kids had that experience. We want that to continue and thrive. So yeah, we share that. And and we should mention like if you and I mentioned Biola, it's just because that's our common experience. It's not to hyper-focus on them. It's it's just that that is our experience and our family history for us, we're a three generation Biola family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we care about these things, but a lot of the things we're going to talk about could be said for higher education more broadly. And in some regards, Christian higher education more broadly. So we're just kind of speaking from our experience because we both had just such a wonderful and beautiful time at Biola and it was well. foundational in our formation and upbringing and, wanting to preserve that for the future generation 
Right. And and being that my career has primarily been in in public higher ed, um, I saw those distinctives between institutions and public institutions. And I saw things in in my career that were, you know, uh, cautions for me as I was looking at what my my kids wanted to do, you know, as yeah. they, you know, saw those distinctives. And so, yeah, we, we yeah. had that same foundation. So. so your kids start going to college and um, I don't know if it's like the, the standard midlife crisis is that uh, you go get a doctor. <laughs> you become, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I did. That's what you did. Right. Talk to us a little bit about your your doctoral journey. You know that that is exactly that's kind of the family joke. Is I decided to have a really um, productive midlife crisis, and so um, I did. I, I completed my my doctorate in curriculum and instruction last summer. Um, after uh, almost four years of full-time doctoral work, I, I that was wonderful. I had the opportunity to work part-time and school full-time so I could get that done in four years. And that's that's what I decided to pursue. And my poor husband had no idea. He His first thought is, great, I have now had three tuitions to pay. <laughs> right. <laughs> but he had no idea this would be, and neither did I really, a, a deep dive into the world of, of academic research, um, discovery of things like the impact of the critical social theories. Yeah. Um, and it just led to the next four years me about 50 times a week saying to my husband, you are not going to believe that seat up and reading of a bunch of things. So he got a little secondhand. He should get a, like an honorary doctorate. Right. Yeah. That ride. But yeah. So that was my well, dream. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that because yeah. you and I started messaging and you're like, wow, <laughs> uh, here's what I'm noticing I, in my research as I'm going through my doctoral program. And one of the things that really jumped out at you was how so much of the research that you had to get through, you know, as you're preparing your dissertation and everything rested on a particular theoretical framework. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, as you are kind of in that process of discovery, I was in my own process of discovery of a similar issue as Monique had come to live mm. with our family and we're having all of these discussions about what I later came to understand was critical race theory, the critical mm. social theories. And you and I then were sort of on this journey together in in parallel. You know, you're in your doctoral program. I'm over here in my real life in my house. And we would be texting each other and like, you know, make it make sense. You know, what is this? Right. Yeah. So walk us through some of the that discovery process of as somebody who, like me, went to college and most of my grad um, school was before the internet. Right, like, exactly. You know, and now we're in our 50s, we're doing a doctoral program. And what are you noticing about the, the shifts and, and what's out there in the research? Well, I should probably start by saying what what I went in looking for um, and kind of what prompted me to what to study is um, as I worked with, well, I'm going to call them teacher candidates. You might know them as student teachers. So I was um, primarily in a role of being that bridge from theory to practice. 
for student teachers as they were entering the profession. And over my 17 years of working in that capacity, I was noticing changes. I was noticing changes in my students. Um, and I kept trying to look at those changes in isolation. Um, things like, okay, they have, they're having more and more trouble taking critical feedback. They're having, and these are generalizations, but things I was seeing these trends, right? Um, noticing, seeing more trouble with maybe resiliency or um, just accurate self-efficacy, different, different things. So I kind of realized early on, and I think this is where some of our conversations started, is it wasn't these isolated skills, but there was a worldview issue and then it impacted. And there were some differences from students I'd been working with, you know, in 2006 to students I was working with in, in 2021. Um, so started looking at research, trying to figure out what's changed. And quickly I discovered a few things. First of all, there is a vast amount of information that is only accessible to people if you have academic access. Okay, there are countless databases that I didn't even realize existed that most people can't access through just a Google search. Um, you have to have some academic credentials as a researcher or a professor to even access the documents. So that opened this entire world that I didn't even realize there, there was information I hadn't had access to. Um, secondly, and this was really key, is realizing academic research must provide a theoretical framework. And so that's really important, and it's really important in our discussion today, is recognizing um, sometimes we use the term theory, and we might think of it as, oh, that, that means that's just a hypothesis. That's not what it means in academic in academic in the academic world. Um, it means this ideological framework that then whatever you're promoting or writing about or researching is established within that framework. So when when we use that term theory, and that's come up a lot in the last few years, when we talk about critical social theories, um, it it means this is an accepted framework of belief. And when that framework is applied, it's a guiding ideology for the research. And it's important to identify that whenever you're looking at something, when people start saying, according to the research, you need to know what research are they talking about? What are the biases of those researchers? What are those references? Where are they coming from? That's important. And that'll be important to our, our discussion today. Yeah. When we talk about it, a lot of times we'll use the, the term worldview. Where's your worldview? What's your foundation? What is the foundation that leads you to be able to discuss this topic, understand this topic, and recognizing um, that that influences how you address something? And as a Christian, our worldview should be a biblical foundation first and foremost. Let's walk. Let's start to walk through. Like, what did you find as you were out there? You're working yeah. on your doctoral program. What did you discover about? this kind of theoretical framework that that was under a lot of the education, social science, literature, because there were some assumptions that might not be readily apparent until you look a little deeper. Yeah. Um, 
you know, those critical social theories, whether we're talking about race theory or critical gender theory, um, these are those academic frameworks that focus heavily, and you've talked about them a lot, a lot of your research um, on identifying, you know, oppressed and oppressor groups, and they have been prevalent as a framework in academia for over two decades. Um, initially, it was seen more in, in um, areas such as law and literature. As a literature major, I can look back now and I can start see even where some of that was starting when I was in, you know, studying English literature in the 90s, um, starting to see some of that coming in. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I had forgotten that you were a literature major at Biola. And yeah. Yeah. You can look back on it now and say, oh, 30 years ago, there were the seeds of this. I just didn't recognize it. Right. Within, I, I remember taking a postmodern literature class and everything in me fought against that because I'm like, there are rules. There are grammar rules. You can't just have a blank page in a book. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, so, um, but seeing kind of the seeds of that and um, starting, but again, in those areas, literature, law, but, okay. um, but now, um, really I could see as I was doing my research, how it has impacted every aspect of higher education, um, which then impacts K-12 education and society. So I'll just, I, have a side note is a lot of times we'll hear people say, oh, well, my school's not teaching right. theory. Okay. I get that every, every stream I do on education, I get people coming on the comments. Well, that's not in, that's not in my school. Right. My, my, my school's not doing that. I'm like, oh, well, and they probably aren't teaching it. Yeah. They've been influenced by it and they Her teachers it. have been shaped yes. by it. It's the it's one's been shaped by it. Yeah. And, and so it is prevalent even if it's not realized. Um and and no, they probably are not teaching this high academic theoretical construct in second grade, but the influence of that ha has a, a trickle down influence. Um that's so and, good. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk a little bit. I know you have some examples here um, about, I want to talk about this idea of cultural responsiveness. I think this is a good example of what we're talking about because this lingo is everywhere in right. education and it sounds pretty. These are what I call pretty right. words. Right. And who doesn't want to be culturally responsive as an educator? Of course we want to be that. So let's just talk briefly about that as an example of, of how you see that popping up. Yeah, like you said, just like with any any discipline, any conversation, apologetics, whatever we're talking about, we have to define terms, right? We have to make sure that we understand. And so recognizing when we say that, we can have the same conversation or have a conversation and not be the same conversation because I'm interpreting it or defining it one way and you're defining it another way. So I think that's really good to point out. It can sound great. So um, as I noted, when I started my doctoral work, I had noticed some trends in, in my teacher candidates um, that I couldn't quite put my finger on. And um, one of the things that I realized as I'm doing my research is um, that, and again, this was my area, but it's 
it's across the board. So um, it's common in teacher education programs for teacher candidates to be given a survey. It might be called something like a cultural responsiveness survey at three points during their training. Typically, it's at the start of their teacher training courses, maybe right before student teaching and then after student teaching. And the survey is used to quantify their views and values and to track how they may have changed over the course of their preparation. So typically, this is called CRP, culturally responsive or culturally re uh, relevant pedagogy. Um, and I, I went ahead and went and made sure I found an, an academic source that defines it. And so here's a quote from a research article in SAGE, that's S-A-G-E, one of the prominent education journals um, from 2020. You can access the abstract and some general information online. But again, unless you have academic credentials, you can't get access to the entire article. So here's, here's a quote um, which explains what culturally responsive pedagogy is. It says, proposed more than two decades ago, CRP is one promising approach to transforming the educational experience of historically marginalized groups. Grounded in the assumption that teaching is inherently complex, value-laden, and never detached from socio-political context, CRP is both practical and political. Culturally responsive teachers not only encourage academic success and cultural competence in students, but also develop their capacity to critically examine social inequalities, challenge the status quo, and take action against social injustice. So my hunch was right when I started saying something's different with these students. There's a shift in worldview. And as I started digging into the research, I found it's because there's been this overt shift in academia from primarily focusing on academic preparation to pushing social activism. Um, well, yeah, it says it right in this, this yeah. definition of value-laden, right. um, never detached from sociopolitical context. It's practical and political. Right taking action against social justice. So there's definitely an orientation of teaching teachers. Part of the teaching endeavor is, I mean, you see this stereotype on social media all the time of like, they're turning our kids into little social justice advocates. Well, you might not be imagining that to some right, degree. Right. Yeah. And, and I really don't think, again, most, I, I was in this world for, for, you know, decades and I didn't see how pervasive it was and how influential it, it was on not only teacher education, but again, across, across the board, but anybody who is a teacher has had this influence, whether they realize or not, whether you're in higher ed, whether you're in K-12, um, it's just built into the fabric of academia. And like they said, this is built on a foundation. In other words, we're not denying it. We're not not even discussing it or debating it. This is the purpose, you know. And so, um, so it is the operate. It's what I call the operating assumption, right. and it's the assumption that doesn't need to be proven. Right. It is the assumption rather that you must bring to your research, and it almost forms like a lens 
through which you see the data. Absolutely. And this is what I saw in science apologetics all the time in looking at the peer-reviewed journals. This is just a different lens, you know, that is brought to the research. But what people have to kind of lay hold of, like the everyday mom has to lay hold of the reality that if they're, you know, the, their teach their kid's teacher has been educated in the last five to 10 years and gone through teacher school, this framework has has probably been to some degree embedded into their educational process. Absolutely. And and again, I think not even your your K-12. We're seeing it I across the board in college. My son's in graduate school right now and just called me a couple of days ago and said, Oh, I have to do this survey before I start my class and I have to identify my pronouns, my sexual orientation, all of these things, nothing to do with his class content, but it's just, it's embedded in the curriculum. And if it's, if it's happening at the college level, it's only a matter of time before it's filtering down into, into the K-12. Now, some of the things I'm seeing and hearing from our constituents who are in the medical profession, they cannot get, they cannot have a, um, uh, college, they can't have their college classes licensed for nursing, for example, unless they are teaching mm-hmm. students about certain um, racial equity issues yeah. and based on Kendi's vision and definition of things. Right. So you cannot be a licensed nursing program in the state of California if you do not teach your students this kind of a way. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, do you know, like, are these requirements for measuring your um, social competency? Is this good? Do you think that this is eventually be- going to become part of licensing for teachers? Like, you can't get a credential without having a certain score on this culturally responsive survey thing. Um, I would say uh, yes. And I think not necessarily per teacher, but programs. Okay. Pro- um, program level. So these things are built into programs because it's part of accreditation. These are requirements that they have. But again, I think that's something that our Christian universities need to be aware of. And that actually was a question that I had when, as we launched into our, our discussion today, wondering if there's some underlying um, influences that are requiring schools to provide trainings and resources and surveys and and whatnot, because definitely know that that's part of why it was included. This isn't just something that a school is randomly doing. These are things that are tied to their, their department or their school or their program being accredited or their students then being able to be certified um, because they have to get their um, institutional recommendation to be able to get their certification. So yeah, I, I definitely think that's... So what right. parents need to understand then is that if they're sending their child to a Christian university, more than likely these these ideas, this f- theoretical framework is going to be embedded into that curriculum as well, 
Now that school might have some things depending on the faculty, the individual mm -hmm. faculty and the corporate faculty and the culture of the university at large, there, there might be different levels to which it's embedded in the program. Yeah. But in order for them to have the highest level of accreditation to license these teachers, they're going to have to have this, this framework embedded into their instruction. And I, I'll, I'll, I'll go out on a limb here. It wouldn't <laughs> surprise me at all if these scores eventually become part of individual licensing for teachers or credentialing or whatever the proper right. term is. I, yeah, no, I think, I think it's really possible. But I do think at least at this point, institutionally, yeah, there are governing boards, licensing, accreditation that it's tied to. There were lots of things that we had to do. You know, all of our students have to do a writing assessment. And so they have to have a certain level that they pass on a on a writing assessment in order for the department or the program to maintain its accreditation. So it wouldn't be, you know, out of the realm of, of possibility to say they also have to have a okay well responsiveness assessment to be able to maintain this. So yeah. So if they're going, if you're sending your kid to a Christian college, you need to understand that they're not going to just be free. Right of of this no. no absolutely not and and but as a, as a parent who sent my kids to christian college i would have an expectation that these discussions would be uh, addressed and incorporated on the foundation of a biblical worldview and and that it wouldn't be replacing a biblical worldview that it would that i, I want them to know i want them to have the foundation to be able to recognize that and discern. And those are the conversations that, you know, I know you have with, with your kids and I have with my kids all the time. And, um, and you know, the reason why my son who's in graduate school at a public university is able to immediately identify this doesn't align with my biblical worldview. Yeah. I have to figure out a way that I can pass this class yeah compromising my values you yeah know? So. so that's really good because um that takes us right into the conversation about christian higher ed and how do they approach these um disciplines of academic knowledge Boo. that the the secular universities have have already embedded these theoretical frameworks into the instruction but also into the at the research level right and um you're a Christian, if you're a Christian university and you're a faculty member at a Christian university wrestling with, okay, um, I want my students to be able to be credentialed teachers. So, cause some of them feel like God is deploying them as a missionary into public education. And that is a, a profession that, that we at the center for biblical unity, we bless them, we pray for them. We think that, you know, yes, go be light in a dark place. And and so if if God raises up somebody to go into to um public education, to government schools as a missionary, great. We'll pray for you. We will bless you. You know, how can we encourage you? All of that. We have a Facebook group for you. So this is not a program that is like to denigrate people right. who work in the government school system or public ed. But 
if I'm a faculty member at a Christian college, I want my students to be able to get that credentialing to go into that place. But that means I have to teach them on some level this framework because okay. it's required by the the accreditation body. Now, the question is, is how do we as a Christian university keep our saltiness, <laughs> our distinctiveness yeah. while also educating our students? Both of us have concerns about the creep of the critical social theories coming into Christian college culture. And we're going to look at an example of that at one Christian university. And we, I had a faculty member at a prominent Christian university reach out to me and send me some training videos that were sent to all of their faculty um, a, a while back. And I sent them the videos over to you. And I was like, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. And that's kind of what led to this conversation, because I think this is a great example of a Christian university that you go on their website, everything looks okay. Their, their statement of faith has been untouched for a hundred years. They have a robust statement about unity and diversity from a theological perspective. All of the, these these, this all looks great on the outside world. I mean, when you're looking at their website, you think this looks solidly biblical. But what the what I've been saying for you know about a year and a half now is you have to look at the culture. You you can't just it's like buying a car and all you do is look at how it looks on the outside and it looks shiny and then you open the uh, there's a bunch of mayhem and foolishness mm -hmm. un under the hood. So you've got to know how to lift up that hood and begin to examine the culture. So our our point here is not to trash any particular Christian university. We're using this as an example of something that we see that is more endemic to Christian higher ed as a whole. Right so that we can comment on it. One of the things that really jumped out at me was having, again, spent my career in public education, this was more overt than what I've encountered in, in public education. So that was what was shocking to me. And to say, I haven't even dealt with this. And and again, curriculum instruction, that's my wheelhouse, how to, how to actively engage learners effectively reach all of your um, students and so that's my my passion my training my and so that's why this was especially interesting to me um on, on so many levels you know so yeah. all right well let's get into it i'm gonna just yeah. look at the page first that it comes up in um you know where they've laid it out for faculty to go so the title for the podcast is Attending to Women Students in Our Classrooms, Addressing Gendered Disparities in Participation in the Classroom. That's the title right. of the training. And then there's a kind of in text in all caps right under that graphic. It says women in the classroom creating a hospitable climate. So that's kind of the big picture of the landing page when the faculty come there, what they see. So what jumps out at you there? 
Right. Well, really, my my first thought was a a gender specific focus in a training like this. I feel like it serves to perpetuate stereotypes that actually devalue women and also degrade men. Yeah. Uh, and honestly, my first thought is as an educated Christian woman, found it kind of insulting. <laughs> and so um, just to be totally blunt, I, I shared it with my daughter, who's also a recent um, Biola graduate. Um, and um, her first response was, wow, that's really patronizing to assert that women can't or won't be successful in college without special attention or because of perceived oppression. Um, and as a mother of a son in graduate school, I can see how just this kind of ideology puts an undue burden on him um, to not participate in class or to fear that he might be branded as, as aggressive or misogynistic, even though that's not remotely who he is. Um, and to see that kind of ideology being promoted specific to gender, um, if it had been um, created a hospitable classroom environment, just with general advice, I'm all for it. That's what I'm all about. Like, there's so many great things that you could do without making it a male versus female approach, which is what this immediately comes across as. Yeah, I think what stands out to me is um, immediately is the the language of using gendered disparities. Yep. Like to me, that immediately what red flags go off for me is, okay, they've already bought into the language. Yes, absolutely. And so that raises a question in my mind of, did they do this because of accreditation? And so they have, they must use this language or are they, or do they buy into the ideology themselves? Yeah. And so that would be something that I would have as a question in the back of my mind as, as I was watching the videos, If you know, and is like, okay, help me make sense of why you're already buying into the language of gender and gender disparities like that that just immediately jumped out at me okay let's watch the first one here it is important to be aware that gender disparities may exist in our classroom environments when we look at student participation current research has significantly identified this as an issue across university campuses and it is something we should be concerned about as well what does this look like well here are some of the findings Female students speak less often than their male counterparts. In fact, men in the college classroom speak 1.6 times more often than women in addition to speaking longer. This number jumps to three times more often when students are not required to raise their hands. Women often feel less comfortable in public debate and as being more reticent to offer their voice, they are more likely to phrase their comments in a hesitant manner. In addition, they are more likely to be interrupted by a male student when they do speak. As students enter our classes, they carry with them their past educational experiences and expectations. Don't assume that they are just shy or embarrassed to talk. It could be that they are withdrawing because of the classroom dynamics they have experienced in the past or are currently observing. We have an opportunity to change the classroom narrative 
for our female students. Now, if you were thinking only male professors could possibly have disparities in the classroom, you'd be wrong. What is interesting is that in one study conducted, five of the nine classes observed had female professors. Being aware that there is a gender dynamic taking place in your classroom is a great starting place. How does the professor contribute to this participation disparity? See if any of these scenarios sound familiar. Calling on male students more frequently than female students, even when there are female students raising their hands. Giving males a longer time to respond to questions than the female counterparts. Giving males more eye contact after asking a question, which implies you want them to answer. Remembering the male students' names and using their names more often in class. Giving males a more extended response to their answers. Asking males more abstract questions and females more factual ones. The impact of these patterns can lead young women who have been entrusted to us to expect less of their abilities. They then carry this with them into the workplace. How can we begin to encourage equal participation? First, be aware that this may be a blind spot for you. The dynamics can be subtle. Encourage all your students to speak. Be patient. Don't always give the floor to the first one to raise their hand. Create opportunities for your quieter students to contribute. I know it can be a challenge, but try to use student names frequently and maintain eye contact. Be aware of your tone of voice when speaking with your male and female students. Does your intonation change when speaking with each gender? Maybe it's time to rethink your classroom format and bring in new ways to encourage collaboration and shared participation leadership within the classroom. The benefits of paying attention to the participation dynamics in our classrooms will yield strong dividends for years to come, not only for our female students, but for our male students as well. Okay, that was a lot to process. So let's start with something on the positive side. Like, what what did you see there? Yeah, I actually, I have one thing that I think is really positive. She said, um, encourage all your students to speak. Be patient. Don't always give the floor to the first one to raise their hand. That's good educational practice. That's a best practice to encourage learner engagement regardless of gender. So that's using a good educational practice to say, hey, give everybody a minute. And and this is something I, I would train my student teachers on is I would say, hey, ask a question, but say, I don't want anyone to respond just yet. I want everybody to write something down first, or I'm going to give everybody a minute and then let's talk to your neighbor first. And then we'll talk to the group. Not because I, it was because the women or the girls were oppressed because they're slow or right. Yeah. There's different processing speeds. There's different personalities. Um, there's different levels of interest in the content that might, there's so many things that, that can impact whether or not you're ready to participate. When we have a really enthusiastic student or someone who's passionate about a topic, that's something as teachers, we try to manage that yeah. um, to encourage participation. But the other thing is some students process internally. Some of them are not wanting to process out loud. And sometimes 
we don't necessarily want to force them into a conversation that they're either not prepared to have or don't want to have, whether it's a young man or a young woman. So yeah. So well, that, I'm not convinced that's a gender issue. No, no. I don't I don't know if that's a gender issue. Not at all. I have questions about all this research. Like she was quoting all of this data. So I just one piece of data that, you know, well yeah. Because Biola for example, you know, our kids went to Biola. I don't know how typical their stats are, but like, for example, their, their, their male female ratio is, I looked it up the other day is right. women is 57%. Men is 42%. Right. So women in that case, and I think this is true of Christian higher ed yeah. in general, they're in the majority of, of the students. Yeah. And so this 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 whole thing is just very puzzling to me. So what are your thoughts about some of this research? Well, so that was one of the things that I we kind of talked about in our pre-discussion, our earlier discussion was to understand the analogy, you'd have to go to their resources, right? So I went to the resources. So the study that she's citing here, um, she mentioned men speak 1.6 times more often than women in college classrooms, okay? And it's it then leaps to revealing how gender inequities regarding classroom participation still exist. Well, that statistic was taken from an article. It was a study done at Dartmouth. It was um, published in the Journal of Gender and Society. That there were other statistics in that same article that were not used in this presentation. And um, for example, since 1982 women have attended and graduated from college with higher GPAs than men. So we're using one metric to say classroom participation. That's the metric that we're going to use to show that there's a gender inequity here. Well, if the girls have higher GPAs than, than the boys on, on average, and it's been that way since 1982. So um, decades of that. Um, additionally, another quote from the same article, it says, some research yields inconsistent evidence or concludes that chilly climates for women simply do not exist. And it cites another article that said this other research found that no gender differences, either in their observational data of classrooms or their survey of students' perceptions of their professor's behavior um, was found. Um, so, and then... Um, Let's see, just one more. This was again from the same article that that these that uh, 1.6 times more likely to speak um, citation was taken from. Says cites two other studies that said those studies found no statistical differences in men and women students' classroom participation patterns, arguing there are clearly more variables involved in classroom interaction patterns than faculty and student. So I think it's really important to look at all of the data. And when the actual article says, yeah, we found this, but it's not conclusive because we've also found this. And to isolate the statistic that supports your premise, that, that's problematic. To me, that's, that's academically dishonest, you know, to, to only pick the statistic that supported what you wanted to promote. Um, well, I think this is an important 
point that you're raising because um, included on the train the faculty training page was a, a link to the PDF that had all of the academic articles on on which the research was allegedly based. So you took the time to go look up the, some of these resources, and I'm just going to put here on on the screen here, you know, just to scroll through that. You know, these were academic journals. So to their credit, they included the information of where are they getting all of this this data, you know. So you took the time to go look up, you know, some of these articles and said, okay, where are they getting this this statistic? Looking at the wider context of things though, you you're you you kind of it was left you wondering like this seems a bit selective is what I hear you say. Well, I did. I looked at quite a few of the references. First of all, the thing that jumped out to me is I think there were 36 or 37 references and none of them um, came from a biblical worldview. So that was concerning to me that what's provided as resources for faculty were not able to provide one resource from a biblical worldview to a Christian faculty. Um, and so, and you kind of go down a rabbit trail when you start looking at, at resources. You look at the resource and you see then who did the resources quote, <laughs> what what informed their uh, research, what informed their reporting or, or their, um, you know, whatever they were writing about. Um, so this particular article that she's citing um, states the theoretical framework. That's something you'll notice in academic research. It's a lot of times the researchers will say the framework that we used and they just let you know. So this one is using Ridgeways, which is a, a researcher, um, theoretical framework of the gender system to understand gendered interaction patterns in college classrooms. According to this perspective, this is from the article, widely shared hegemonic cultural beliefs about gender shape social interactions in what the authors call social relational context. And it goes on and explains a little bit more. And it says, but it then will say repeatedly, these cultural beliefs are highly durable and widely held. And, but in the same article, they had, uh, they cited research that said, yeah, we didn't find the same thing when we did a study, <laughs> you know, so so choosing it to say these are cultural beliefs. So they're acknowledging right now, this is not, we're not coming at this from what is a biblical view on identity and um, gender. We're coming at this from a cultural sociological perspective and then making these, you know, requirements or recommendations for teachers to use in, in their classroom. So that's concerning. I think we need to know where did you get this view? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the, the, it seems though that if they were to use the, the research as a whole, uh, kind of a different picture begins to emerge. It almost feels like there's a level of selection bias or misrepresentation of what the research really shows are they're, they're kind of just revealing the research that that or highlighting the research that confirms the theoretical framework right or or am i missing something there no i think that's absolutely right and i think um 
their framework, it, it, it's based on the assumption that class participation is solely influenced by social gender expectations and is the primary measure of equity, right? And so, while completely ignoring the fact that the same article notes that women get higher grades. So I maybe they just process and participate differently. And because I don't see anybody saying, wow, it's really unfair that women are getting higher GPAs. Maybe we need some GPA equity for men. I think, you know, like nobody's, nobody's pointing out that statistic and trying to create a policy that tries to level the playing field for that. Yeah. When you look at the resources, you know, the, the, the journals that are being um, used are, there's just a few of them that we put in our notes here of uh, quarterly journal of experimental psychology, journal of personality and social psychology. Columbia University, Dartmouth College. Not that there's anything inherently wrong or or evil about these institutions, but we just have to understand the theoretical framework that is below their research and is assumed to be true. It's not a framework to be proven. It's assumed to be true and right. then creates a lens for which you interpret the data. And, and one... I'll offer is, is kind of a bit of a disclaimer. Um, it is hard to find scholarship from a Christian or biblical worldview perspective in academia because by and large, those perspectives have been underrepresented. But And that was something that I ran into. When I started doing research, the prevailing view because perpetuates itself and so it's it, yeah. you know rather than it was hard to find a conflicting perspective because those things don't get traction um in in you know the publishing world so but that's an important point and that's what led james Lindsay and helen pluck pluck rose yeah. to, to write journal articles and they got them successfully published in academic journals just based on the framework yeah and they were trying to make a point yeah that that what is counts as now is peer review research is really well we just want things that reinforce Absolutely. this critical framework yeah. right but this is where i think in in if krista ruled the world you know that christian right. higher ed could actually provide a research counterpoint exactly. to some of this you know like right. when i look back 30 years ago at the project that um dr jp moreland started at Talbot School of Theology was he imagined a world where he would educate bright young philosophers to go into doctoral programs at secular universities and begin a, a renaissance of Christian philosophers and Christian philosophy. This was his big vision right. in, in 1993 when he started that program at Talbot. And to some degree, he has he has that vision has changed the, the landscape of Christian mm -hmm. philosophy. Well, if Crystal ruled the world, we would be replicating that model in Christian higher ed of how are we going to educate bright young minds with these, these frameworks that go against our worldview. Dr. Moreland didn't stand up in our classes and, and only teach Christian ideas. Right. He taught us this, the, the most secular godless ideas 
and then taught us how to where they fall down, where they collapse. Yep. Why aren't we doing this in other disciplines um, right. so that we can look to peer-reviewed articles mm -hmm. written by other voices or have competing academic journals where there is freedom of thought, you know? So I'm trying to get us out of the, the trap of thinking, well, this is all that's available, this is all that's out there. Right. right. Okay, I concede that point. But what are Christians doing to look into the future of how we are going to marshal resources to have a different voice? Okay, let's hit one more here and then we'll wrap up with some final thoughts. Part of the way that we understand how to communicate with one another is based on our gender. How do others treat us and speak to us based on our gender? And how are we taught that it is appropriate to speak to others based on their gender? This develops through our interactions with others. First, by our primary caregivers and family, and later on through instructors, peers, and even the media. As has stated in our Unity Amidst Diversity theological statement, our relationships best flourish when we are interdependent on each other and community. As we are called to reconcile to Christ, we must be reconciled to those different from ourselves. So picture yourself on a playground. There is a three-year-old little boy and a three-year-old little girl playing together. Both of them fall down and scrape their knees. What do their caregivers teach them about how it is appropriate to communicate their experiences? A little boy is more likely to be told, you're okay, don't cry, be a big boy, rub some dirt in it, walk it off. On the other hand, the little girl is more likely to be asked, are you okay? Does it hurt? Or told, it's okay, you can cry. The boys have then been taught to downplay their emotions and feelings, while the girls have been taught to express theirs openly. This not only affects the communication of our students, but our communication as well. In Western culture, men are primarily taught to be instrumental and to communicate to accomplish tasks, while women are taught to communicate to establish relationships. And this isn't to say that women don't communicate to accomplish tasks and that men don't communicate to develop relationships, but by and large, these are the communication styles taught in North American culture. Both faculty and students then bring these communicative tools into the classroom. The didactic nature of the classroom encourages instrumental communication which may by its very nature be easier for our male students. Since men are taught to communicate to accomplish tasks, they may find it easier than women to answer questions in class. In contrast, female students may hesitate, even if they know an answer, while they consider how their response will affect the classroom. Because of this dynamic, open-ended discussion questions rather than questions that require specific answers are preferable whenever possible. As a faculty member, it is important for us to reflect on our own question-asking skills. What are our personal strengths and weaknesses and blind spots when we enter the classroom? How do we ask questions and seek responses? How do we set up a classroom that allows for open dialogue that seeks mutual respect? Asking students to describe good discussions and setting norms together regarding participation can promote inclusivity. 
When you set the stage for your classroom, I would encourage you to not only set the stage for your learning plan for the semester, but set the stage for how you will communicate together in your learning environment. As we engage in this process, we must remind our students and ourselves that each of us is made differently and uniquely to reflect the image of God. We must seek reconciliation through mutual understanding and listening well, and even a brief conversation about how to engage in classroom discussion at the beginning of each semester has the potential to reap dividends. Okay, that was a lot. Um, it was a lot of claims. Right. Uh, it was a lot of musts. I, I heard yeah. her use the word must. Right. A lot of call to, call to action there. Call to actions. Um, but it felt like she wanted the classroom to be set up to be inclusive. But and maybe I missed something, but inclusive sounded kind of like geared toward how females communicate. Right. I, um, did I did I misunderstand something there? Well, again, as they said with the previous video is there were a lot of contradictions so definitely agree when she says you know god made each of us and made us differently and uniquely to reflect the image of god yes and amen i i can be on board with that yes but the rest of the presentation seemed to argue against that there's uh, a lot of stereotypes right women and men are only the way they are because of western programs. i mean when we're saying we're created differently recognizing it's not necessarily a socio-cultural influence that that impacts that and yeah. just uh, assumes that all of these gender roles or expressions are you know uh, social norms versus innately wired in us by our creator but but this wasn't approached from a biblical lens um, but this is where we see kind of bible language used yeah. as a wrapper for this yeah. conversation so they hijack the word reconciliation mm -hmm. which is a biblical word second corinthians chapter five right but in that context what it's talking about is paul gives the command be reconciled to God. Right. And the ministry of reconciliation that we then have is to call others to be reconciled to God. Right. There is no biblical injunction of being groups being right. reconciled to each other. There's no biblical concept of races being reconciled or genders being reconciled. Mm -hmm. This is the subtle shell game that some Christians engage in when they've been impacted by social justice is they take that word but and like, then they take an idea from social justice and they kind of fuse them together. But that's not how it works in the Bible. Yeah. There's no call for us to, and so she says, in our effort to be reconciled to each other. I don't know what you're talking about. This right. is not a biblical concept. No. The only person we are reconciled with is God, and then we become family. And that is not a destination to be achieved. It is a reality that we live from. And so that was highly confusing language. But I know that kind of language is used all the time in the social just 
Christian social justice conversation. Right. And in those critical theory um, ideologies, again, there's this is why we have concerns as as believers that there's conflict with biblical foundation in those areas. Yeah. Areas of identity, gender, sexuality, um, you know, um, unity. (laughs) Yeah. You know, whatever, whatever the, whatever construct you want to put in there. Um, but using that language again, you know, we pointed that out with the previous video. It's a, a really bad hermeneutic to try to take a, a biblical precept and filter it through a cultural lens um, rather than applying our, our culture is, is laid upon a biblical foundation. <laughs> you know, we're not doing this car before the horse that's really, really dangerous. So yeah. well, let's talk about that as we wrap up here, some of the impacts of, you know, let's say, um, in your experience in working in higher ed and working with a lot of, you know, aspiring teachers, if you will, what do you think are going to be the long-term impacts? Let's talk about both on faculty, but also male and female students. Like I'm thinking um, if if I'm working in Christian higher ed as a faculty member, this is going to make me low-key paranoid. Like I'm going to start okay. um, kind of micro-inspecting Oh, am I asking enough open-ended questions? Am I, you know, how am I going to be reviewed in my performance review? Am, am I, am I calling on too many, too many male students? Am I maintaining eye contact? Like I'm going to be a little low-key paranoid about, about these issues. That would be an impact on me if I had to sit through these trainings. Yeah, no, that would be my concern as well. And and again, I think it comes from a good place of, I, I don't know why the whole thing couldn't have been promoted, like, hey, promoting learner engagement in your classroom. You know, how do we oh. to create a climate that allows for participation and maybe draws in students who are more reluctant to contribute? And, and those are... So we're getting out of the gender conversation, put yeah. it into... Here's how to enhance your, how to get more active learners. Here's some ideas for different ways of presenting information or engaging mm-hmm. in group discussion or group sharing. Oh. oh, that would have been so much better. And there, I, I could have some old profs that could use that training. Like well, that. Absolutely. And, and, and thing is in, a lot of times in higher ed, the professors are not actually trained in education they're trained yeah yeah they're trained in their content um Mm -hmm. and they're experts in their content but so even just a basic review of how do we work to engage all of our learners how do we create an environment that encourages participation see absolutely no reason to make that distinctive um by this approach which i feel like is patronizing to women We've got to do something special so the girls can feel safe, you know, and, and I think it's, um, has the potential to really be silencing and, and, um, hurtful, harmful to, to men. Um, in my view, this emphasis on gender is divisive, is destructive, um, and men and women are different by design, 
and trying to focus that we have to create spaces that elevate women while marginalizing men. Um, that's not biblical either. No, like it, that's, yeah. that's not helpful. It's I, I, I don't see any reason why we can't recognize that we have distinctives. We're created differently and it's okay that we may respond different in different contexts. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. That that's helpful. And I love your idea of like if they had just taken it out of the gender conversation and turned it into a training on how to engage more students or engaging different learning styles and had it be ideas about, you know, like you said, like, all right, I want, I want everyone to write down an answer or take a minute to think about it. And then, you know, we'll have some small group discussion, some large group discussion. We'll have a variety of different ways of learning that would have been so much more helpful uh helpful for everybody it yeah. isn't saying let's let's isolate this based on this limited data um, that is yeah. you know contrasted by other data you know yeah. and formulate this entire training that again like you said i would be hyper focused on okay i don't really call him you know, I have to call on two women for every man to, you know, yeah. space. And and again, I want to thank my friend Kristen McLaren for sitting down, having that conversation with me and just talking through her own journey and understanding the impact of the critical social theories uh, on higher education and Christian higher education. As I close out this uh, teaching, I want to share with you a couple of reasons why it is that I think that the administrators, the presidents, the board members allow this theoretical framework to remain in Christian higher ed. And this is, again, the result of a lot of research that I've done and talking to a lot of people. And when I say a lot, I probably interviewed I'm going to say conservatively 25 to 50 people in, involved in Christian higher ed and diff, at different levels and different departments and different ways. And there's definitely a thread of things that, that have emerged from those interviews. And one of the most common questions I get from parents and concerned alumni from various Christian colleges and concerned donors is why why don't they just get rid of it why don't they fire people why don't they recant why don't they backtrack why don't they weed this out why why have you know okay they're 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 they can concede like okay they let it in but now they know better you know why do they continue to let it be there maybe it was a mistake Maybe they didn't know. They want to give them the benefit of the doubt and all of that. Well, I think that there are two reasons, and they're kind of interconnected reasons. The first one is money. Nobody likes to talk about money. But here's the reality of what I found in my research is that a lot of Christian colleges are dependent on federal funds. This can often come through things like the veterans program. Uh, 
veterans as a result of their service, which I, I commend uh, people who are willing to put their life on the line, you know, for the sake of freedom. I, I appreciate that. I'm not against veterans. And, but the money that Christian colleges get as a result of recruiting veterans into their colleges is substantial. And some Christian colleges have so banked on this money and made hiring and expansion dependent on them continuing to have this revenue stream that I think this is this is the part of it where I'm getting into a speculation. I think that what's happening is based on things I've researched, people I've talked to in key key um, places, is that because the schools are dependent on government money, there's an increasing awareness that in order to continue to receive this money, they're going to have to at least feign compliance with diversity, equity, and inclusion ideas. And so there, some of them, and again, this is a spectrum issue. Some schools don't yet have an office of diversity. Some schools do. Uh, some schools are trying to kind of be in the middle by putting together diversity teams with existing faculty, multicultural teams and that sort of thing. But schools know that on some level, they are dependent on this money. And they're going to have to at least look like they're giving a nod toward diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our government, our, even our military, is being restructured, refocused with those values in mind. So this is not, I don't think, an outlandish speculation. The second reason why I think so many uh, Christian college administrators and board members do not drive out the critical social theories is accreditation. And I alluded to this a little bit in my conversation with Kristen. There are some academic disciplines that have now become tied to a school promoting certain principles of racial equity based on the framework of Ibrahim X. Kendi, for example. And so if you're going to have a licensed nursing program, if you're going to have uh, a preparatory path for your students to become credentialed teachers, they're going to likely have to demonstrate some amount of fluency with these ideas. I think that uh, in the medical profession, we're seeing this start to grow uh, more broadly besides just nursing, but also into doctors and, and that sort of thing. Um, these standards are now considered to be part of what is a quality education. And so if Christian universities want to compete, they want to turn out students who can get the government licensing, get government credentialing. They're going to more than likely have to teach these ideas from a positive perspective. When my daughter was at Biola in the English department, she was taught critical theory 
from the standpoint of acceptance. We're going to assume that this, this is true. And now we're going to use this as a lens to reinterpret and critically analyze literature, works of literature. So I think that if schools want to maintain their accreditation, they likely, again, I'm speculating, but this is not a wild speculation. This is based on people that I've talked to at Christian universities who are in administrative positions. To some degree, uh, a quality education that will be accredited must include some instruction along these lines. So the question is, is, you know, what freedom is there for Christian colleges to teach this material, but also to teach students to critically analyze it? That's a big question for me that I am not seeing many people in Christian higher ed address. From what I can tell, based on the research I've done and the people that I've interviewed, these ideas are only rarely ever taught from the perspective of here's what these this framework is and here's how it compares, contrasts, and contradicts with the Christian worldview. If a school is going to stay afloat, if it's going to continue to have money and accreditation, it's going to have to teach these viewpoints uh, and at least, again, feign compliance with them on some level. And again, spectrum issue, some more than others. But this is my theory as to why boards, college presidents, administrators allow these ideas to persist, why they don't shut down diversity offices, why they don't fire people, why they don't um, hire differently than, than they are. I, I think that this is why. I could be wrong. And again, you know, I'm, I'm putting this out there as a theory, as a working theory. If you have information related to how schools make these decisions. If you have contrary receipts to show me I'm wrong, please bring them forward. Let me know. Um, send them to me. You can email me. You can send them through the ministry. That would be great. I'd love to see them. But this is where I think we are. And this is the answer to the why question. And with that, I want to thank you for watching. Please share this with a friend who works in Christian higher ed. Good night and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening.